You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 113 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Marie Hawes, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Carla Godwin. Hi, Victoria and Carla. Hello, Marie. Hi. So let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Um, Victoria, could you go first? Sure. Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Uh, I currently live in Woodstock, Georgia, with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. And uh, as I said on our previous episode, big thing I'm dealing with right now is uh, I am currently in between jobs, looking for work, doing the interview thing. Uh, so that's... Uh, it's pretty much taking up most of my time these days. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, Carla? Hi, I'm Carla Godwin. Yeah, and I live in Minneapolis with my daughters. Um, I have two daughters, 12 and 6, um, and we live here. I also work as an operations manager at the Graves Foundation, which is a very new position for me, so I'm super empathetic, Victoria, to the, the struggle of interviewing and trying to find the right thing that fits. Um, so, yeah, here's to you. Um, I have a master's degree in early modern literature from the University of Nebraska, and I have been um, organizing female clergy through an organization called She Is Called for the last couple of years. We also have a podcast. I have a podcast called Holy Writ. So I do um, just random organizing along with my full-time work and momming. And if you guys aren't listening to Holy Writ, you should be. It's great. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. I did not even know about Holy Writ. I'm going to have to look it up now. (laughs) (laughs) We've been on a bit of a a sabbatical for the last year, but we have 12 really solid episodes and we'll get going again here. I have several more recorded. I just need to get them produced. So, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show, and um, I've also studied early modern literature. I have a PhD in it from Florida State University, and I recently completed a Master's of Divinity with a Certificate in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Yale Divinity School, um, where right now I'm uh, serving as a teaching assistant for New Testament, just working a little bit. So I'm hopefully going to be getting into looking for some sort of full-time position like, like you guys have <laughs> experienced at some point. Um, but right now I live in Connecticut with my husband, Jonathan, and our little seven-month-old, so also working as a mommy. Mm-hmm. Um, so today's episode is on the Song of Songs, and let me give a little bit of background on it. It's a book of the Bible, obviously, a book of love poems, basically, that forms part of both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament. 
it, as a piece of scripture, it really stands out in that it never mentions God, or even it never even mentions something like prayer and fasting, like in Esther, that would imply a concern with God, even without having a direct reference to God. The song has the appearance of being a set of thoroughly secular, erotic lyrics. The eight chapters of the book don't have an immediately apparent structure, though people have tried hard to find one, and we'll hear one sort of structure that um, Phyllis Tribble suggests in her article in a minute here. Uh, so there's a lot of theories about how you could get a structure. But one clear unifying element is that there are three recurring speakers. One is an unnamed woman who's often called the Shulamite. She describes herself as black and beautiful or black but beautiful. Uh, there's argument about how that conjunction should be translated, um, and we'll probably talk more about that in a little bit. Another speaker is an unnamed man, her beloved, who sometimes seems to be a king and sometimes seems to be a shepherd. The third voice is that of the Daughters of Jerusalem, a group of women who are alternately supportive of and hostile to the love of the Shulamite and the man. Despite the traditional attribution to Solomon, the author and the exact date of composition is unknown, so guesses at dates range from like 10th century BCE to 2nd century BCE, with like the language would suggest sort of the later end of that range, um, but the themes could be coming from way further back. So there's a few theories about how the song might have been composed. One influential one, popularized by Marvin Pope especially, is that it could have been connected with a fertility cult ritual marriage celebrating the love of the gods and goddesses through love on earth. Another theory is that it could have been a kind of source book for songs to use at weddings. And other people think that maybe it's just this uh, secular love poetry, unconnected with any kind of weddings, uh, literal or cultic. But uh, whatever its origins, when you look at the song, you can see it's definitely filled with eroticism, lots of double entendres all over the place. Interpretations of the song have often kind of tended to explain away the sex in some ways, uh, especially through allegory. Early rabbinic interpretations saw this as an allegory of the love of God for Israel. In the Christian allegorical interpretive tradition, it's instead the love of God or of Christ for the church, or sometimes for Mary, or for many Christian mystics, it's the union of the soul with God. In, um, in one medieval Jewish mystical interpretation, the song allegorizes the union of God and the Shekinah, the feminine aspect of God. And um, one interesting interpretation is popular Victorian Christian interpretation was trying to get rid of the, se the sex in the song in a different way by imposing a whole dramatic structure onto it, saying, here's this innocent country girl who gets lured into this sexy, sexy court life and flees in virtuous horror back to her wholesome country boyfriend to get married. Um, and the sexual material in the song is just sort of illustrating the depravity of the court. So that's, that's kind of a fun one. But feminist interpretations... Um, in contrast to most interpretive strands, have really tried to emphasize that the song is a frank celebration of sex. They often point out that marriage is nowhere mentioned in the song. And the song is, of course, particularly valuable to feminists because it's it's a very rare bird indeed, a female-voiced biblical text giving seemingly positive shape to female sexual desire. So we'll look in a minute at two pieces that point this out and celebrate it in different ways. One is a classic feminist essay by Phyllis Tribble titled Love's Lyrics Redeemed. And uh, the other one is a commentary on the song by womanist Renita Weems in the Women's Bible Commentary. 
But first, let's talk about our previous experiences with the song. How have you encountered this book of the Bible before? Maybe when you were growing up, or how you've heard it used in church, or encountered it in other places. Um, Victoria, would you like to go first with this? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, I don't have a lot of specific sermon memories involving the song. Um, in fact, I'm not sure I have any um, like church-wide sermon memories. I don't think I've ever heard it uh, preached on in terms of the entire congregation. Uh, I do remember it being discussed in youth group vaguely. Um, I remember being told in the church van on some trip or other that uh, we shouldn't really read the Song of Songs, which I grew up hearing called the Song of Solomon, um, until we were an older teenager or like in a relationship or thinking about being in a relationship. There was this discussion of it being um, too, too mature for younger readers, um, which I don't necessarily disagree with actually. Um, it was definitely at least alluded to during the church-sanctioned sex talk I received in youth group, but I mostly got the Bride of Christ allegory reading, um, Marie, that you mentioned earlier. Most of my uh, memories of this song are a bit more personal. It's very significant to my dad and stepmom's marriage. Uh, they It's like a, a special text to their relationship. They have... Um, the first verse stenciled on the wall in part of their house. Uh, so that's that's kind of the, the personal context I, I grew up around. Um, I know they've also given each other gifts with other verses from the song on them over the years. Uh, as an adult, I really respect that. I, I like the attempt to prioritize their marriage and also uh, include it prominently in their religious practice. Uh, I'm really happy that that was modeled uh, for me and that sex sort of wasn't uh, hidden or lost over uh, as an adult. As a teenager, uh, sorry dad, I just thought all that stuff was kind of gross and I, I like, you know, didn't want to be uh, confronted with them having a, a sexual relationship, even though obviously I knew it was happening. Uh, so yeah, re really uh, grateful for that as an adult. As a 14 year old, not so much. Sorry dad. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> what about you, Carla? Um, yeah, I, I also read it as the Song of Solomon was how it was presented to me. And I would say my experiences, aside from my parents, <laughs> um, overlap with Victoria's significantly in that it wasn't really preached on so much as visited when we got to the purity culture conversations um, of, of uh, youth group. Um, so and, and at that point, it was very much taught as a this kind of thing was for marriage alone. And so it's not that passion was to be thrown out. It was simply not a thing we were supposed to experience yet, right? That whole thing. Um, what's interesting is I pulled out my Bible from the time, uh, and I'm using it for our conversation. And it's a New American Standard study, study Bible. And Marie, you pointed out that in the book, there's no actual... Um, discussion of marriage. But what's really fascinating is in the Ryrie Study Bible, they have like imposed a an outline on the book that is a marriage structure. It starts with the courtship, it goes to the procession for marriage, and then the consummation, and then like the, the marriage ages. So all the way through in the like uh, outline headings of the book that Ryrie has imposed on Song, Song, Song of Songs, it talks about the wife and the husband. So it doesn't just talk about the Shulamite woman and her lover. It, it uses wife and husband language. So it was very much, to me, 
um, presented not as just a celebration of sexuality, but as a celebration of sexuality within marriage. So oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, so it's yeah, definitely I, an imposition on what I think the book is actually doing. I don't, I don't read that into the verses themselves, but throughout my Bible reading in high school, that was what was you know implied to me by the structure of the interpretation of the edition, I guess. What's what's the word I would look for there? You know, the study Bible. So, Yeah, I think that must be encouraged in a lot of the, the apparatus we get in different biblical versions, because I'm using the New Revised Standard Version, and in mine too, even though in the introduction to the song, they say it never doesn't deal with uh, marriage in the headings for the different sections they were always talking about the bride and the bridegroom so right, yes. <laughs> they're encouraging that interpretation too right and that allows room for the christ you know christ and the church that that metaphoric interpretation of the bride of christ the church being the bride of christ right it's trying to do both with that but it isn't in the text itself so it's just a fascinating uh, mm-hmm. imposition that we make on it i think yeah um so for myself um actually i think i had less exposure to the song than you guys in any kind of youth group setting. I can't remember ever hearing about it in youth group. I think I probably first read the song when I was like reading through the Bible just straight through a few times in my devotions when I was growing up because I was taught like that's what you're supposed to do just read part of it every day all the way through. Um, I did think it was kind of oddly sexual to be in the Bible, but I definitely didn't find it as disturbing as all the various, like, rapes that you run into when you read through the Bible, um, but that you don't really hear about preached on much either. Or something like Ezekiel 16, where you have the really graphic, like, slut-shaming metaphor for uh, talking about Israel, which is just, yeah, a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we had in our house just floating around amongst our books, a book with a classic kind of allegorical interpretation of um, Christ in the church. So I had that idea. Um, what else? I remember in high school, uh, I wrote a short story once where the protagonist keeps reading the Song of Songs and getting reminded of his crush. Um, and I can't remember what else happens <laughs> in the story. Uh, but I remember it was hard for me to find phrases from the song that I could stick into the story that would translate into modern terms of desire. Because when you have like teeth like sheep and cheeks like pomegranates, it kind of does sound weird today. Do you still have that uh, school assignment? Because I feel like we would all really like to read it. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Show notes. It wasn't even an assignment for school. I was just writing it for fun. I don't know why. Uh, That's even better. (laughs) It must be somewhere on some jump. Um, But for our reading segment, the two pieces and then respond with our own thoughts about how we can interpret the song as feminists. So, Victoria, you prepared a summary of the Tribble essay, so you could go ahead with that. Uh, yeah, so first of all, thanks, Marie, for telling us to read this. Um, I had never read it before, and I, I learned a lot uh, and really enjoyed reading it. So, Tribble's argument really hinges on the relationship between Song of Songs and chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. She says you have to understand that part of Genesis to properly understand the song because the disobedience of original sin 
disintegrates the initial unity between Adam and Eve, and she notes that uh, what she calls the Garden of Eros in the song is a refiguring of the Garden of Eden. Uh, she says, quote, through expansions, omissions, and reversals, this poetry recovers the love that is bone of bone and flesh of flesh. So she says that these two um, pieces of biblical text uh, can be seen to be speaking to one another. Um, she breaks down the construction of the poem and talks about the three voices um, that Marie already mentioned, the woman, the man, and a group of women called the Daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, though she does say there's no straightforward plot, um, she imposes her own structure on the text, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, she also notes that the language is both elusive with an A and elusive with an E. Um, it's really full of metaphor and lots of other figurative language. Um, and it's often confusing. It's hard to tell the speakers apart. Um, they kind of blend together in their speaking um, to and across each other a lot. She notes as... Uh, you did, Marie, that the woman is the poem's most prominent speaker, and uh, Tribble argues that um, a, a really important feminist uh, hermeneutic to note about the text is that the female speaker is valued um, equally and mutually because of her dominance of the uh, conversation, and also we get a, a communal uh, female voice. So this is a very, a very woman-centric uh, book. Structurally, she divides the song into five movements, uh, which I will um, I'll tell you uh, where she where she divides those movements really quickly. She says the first is from uh, one two to two seven, and it's primarily a description of the male lover from the point of view of the female one. Uh, it's super intimate, describes a number of body parts in uh, fairly specific detail. The second section is from chapter 2, verse 8 to chapter 3, verse 5, and is especially notable because it culminates in the female lover seeking and finding the male one. So we have um, female agency and romantic pursuit there. The third movement is from chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 8. Um, we have a repeat of the uh, seeking, but in that section, not only does she not find him, um, she's in fact assaulted by guards of the city in the process. Uh, in the fourth movement, from uh, chapter 5, verse 9 to chapter 8, verse 4, we get uh, the daughters of Jerusalem speaking primarily. Uh, the female lover has been asking them questions and uh, and pleading to them, uh, asking them to help her in the previous movement. In this section, they ask her questions about her lover, um, like these at the beginning of the section. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? So you get um, these women saying... Uh, why should we believe you that your lover is so great? Why should we be involved in this? The female lover speaks again at the end of the fourth movement, uh, but this time it changes because she's speaking directly to the male lover. 
Uh, this is my favorite part of the text. She tells him that she feels as close to him as a brother and wants to bring him into the hospitality of her mother's house. Um, it's this really beautiful uh, vision of, of female-led community. And in the fifth and final movement, uh, which is the rest of chapter eight, uh, Tribble calls it a consummation, says that intimacy triumphs because the woman, quote, summons her man to love and yes, she calls it a consummation several times. Um, after her summary, she comes back to the notion of the two gardens and the redemption of the Genesis 2 and 3 exile of Adam and Eve. Uh, she notes that uh, both male and female bodies are described as gardens and that both lovers use plant imagery to recognize the beauty of the other and to discuss uh, the joy found in the erotic union. Uh, she also says... That that union is seen in macrocosm, uh, in a union between humans, plants, and animals, and in a union between the notion of work and the notion of play. So all the divisions and hierarchies that are set up um, by the post-lapsarian expulsion are undone. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a, a pretty solid summary of what she says. One of the yeah. things that I loved about what she says and I your your summary is so well done to say part of what she's highlighting or emphasizing is that these things that were set up as disparities have become equalities to some degree um and one of the verses in genesis that are that has always bothered me or that I've always wondered about is I think it's at the end or it's in it's in genesis 3 so just as they're being kicked out of the garden one of the thing god says one of the things god says to eve is your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you so her desire becomes like um, the thing that makes her in, in, in like um, able to be ruled. And part of what I read her doing in this, Tribble doing in this article is to say her desire is actually the thing that makes her equal, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And that was a fascinating kind of turn because that literally that verse since the first time I read it, re remember reading it in high school has been like, what are we talking about? Your desire shall be for your husband. And so he shall be able to rule over you. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> so for, for Tribble to pull out desire as like a, a move toward equality um, and the, particularly female desire, because as we've said, this this book starts with the voice of the woman and her desire is is eloquently, you know, displayed throughout um, and so it's the idea that that's what switches actually to equity is fascinating to me. Yeah. And her desire is powerful and beautiful in addition to being equal here. Um, I, I really wish, I mean, I, I know why this wasn't taught to me, um, a, a variety of, uh, systemic reasons and also reasons that probably had to do with just, the people who were teaching me not being equipped to do that, but I, I wish so much that I had gotten that um, Bible-centered view of, of female desire when I was younger. I think that would have changed a lot of things for me. Right, for sure. Yeah, she has such a, a emphasis on mutuality and harmony, um, saying, like, there's no male dominance, no female subordination, no stereotyping of either sex, which is maybe a little arguable, but there's definitely a lot of, uh, I, I think she's right, there's a lot of mutuality going on in this poem, and that's such a powerful thing for us reading it today. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, I think um, we can... Uh, move on from this when you want, but I was definitely raised to think that women didn't have sexual desire or weren't supposed to. 
um, that are, we were responsive to male desire, you know, so it would have been really problematic or troubling to that idea of purity culture that was implicit in it, um, maybe not explicit, um, that women didn't actually have desire, we were responsive to and responsible for male desire, rather than actually caring for or nurturing or understanding our own sense of desire. Um, and that I think primed women to be not only the sexually responsible one, but also then in the complementarian ideal, the, the help meet one rather than one with her own, uh, impetus and desire and, um, ambition even. So. Yeah. So it's so powerful that Tribble and her argument is breaking away from that and finding this mutuality really at the center of the Bible and this holy text. Yeah. Um, and that's part of why this this essay has been so influential, I think. Um, if we could go on to Carla, you had the summary of Weems, and she mm -hmm. responds to Tribble a little bit in her commentary, actually. So uh, what, what did you see in Weems? Mm -hmm. um, so part of th this uh, commentary first is it lays out a, a background of the of the book that you already did, Marie So I won't talk a lot about that. There's a comment section in it where she just talks about what she sees happening, and then she goes on to make an argument. Um, but in the comment section, one of the things she points out that I think is really worth highlighting is that the book doesn't talk about love as a theory. It doesn't talk about it in some sort of theoretical sense. It moves it entirely into the sensual and the sensory. So it's it moves it from what is love and some sort of mystical thing to what is our human embodied experience of love insects and so it that move i thought was really interesting that she points that out um and then she goes on to say that it is the the female protagonist who actually stands out as the one with desire so i'm going to read just a, a sentence of this she says certainly the female protagonist protagonist in the song of songs stands out in biblical literature as a woman who insists on her right to initiate love to feel to enjoy and to explore the power of her sexuality and that idea, just based on what we were just talking about, I think is so powerful. Um, I have a, I have a, a dear friend and uh, co colleague who does a lot of writing on this, and she's done a lot of research on, on Jewish sexual myths and ideas. And um, her name is Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers. But in her book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, she writes about an ancient Jewish idea called the vow of Ona, which basically says that sexuality, sex, is the right of a woman and not the right of a man. And it doesn't mean that men shouldn't enjoy it equally. It simply means that the female's pleasure is the center of sexuality and that that is the thing by which we pace sexuality, um, which was just is interesting in reading this, that so much of what happens in the Song of Songs um, from this perspective is that, is a, a centering of female desire and female initiation, which is fascinating. Um, but then she goes on, Weems goes on in her article to lay out basically an argument and say, and part of what she's doing in responding to Tribble is saying, this isn't just like a response to a particular book or a rewriting of that. It, it actually is making its own argument. And the arguments that she says it's making are interesting. She talks, she breaks it down into four, four sections. And in the first one, she talks about the idea of um, the Shulamite woman and that, sh and that there may be some sort of um, racial conflict in the book that they're trying to that she's trying to argue against that they have a right to their love in spite of perhaps a class or race difference so the first part she she focuses on that which is super interesting and then she goes on um to say th there's a whole section there are several times it repeats the book repeats do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready and sometimes that has been um read as like a prohibition to sexual love. And she says instead, what they're, what she's trying to say to the daughters of Jerusalem, the protagonist is, don't 
interrupt us until we have had our full dose of love, until we get all that we want. <laughs> Don't interrupt us, basically, is what she's saying. So she's arguing again that this isn't about refraining from love. This is about a full experience of it. Oh, um, the lovers are, are always having to sort of like... Um, escape or or move from here to there or find each other in these clandestine ways. And so she's discussing the fact that this particular couple actually is really fighting for their particular experience of love and um, and that they are having. And then in number four, she she moves on to say they are actually having to assert their right to love. And it, it to me, was just such an interesting idea that this isn't about some sort of um, I mean, I think it is a both and. It's not just an overarching, like, sexuality is a beautiful thing and, and that, but it is a very particular down to how the person smells, how the person, you know, tastes, what what different, like, particulars of that couple that are, that are precious. She goes on to say, Weems says that the protagonist is actually arguing for the specificity of her love and that she has the right to have this particular sensory embodied experience of sexuality and love. And um, I found that just to be super fascinating because I think um, so often we allow the, we, these things like kind of exist in theory and we're not sure how they, they translate into our actual embodied experience. Um, do you all have anything to add to that, having also read Weems? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the embodiment is such an important thing here and um, I mean, arguably in triple as well. Um, and the idea that the song is making an argument for the right for these lovers specifically to have their love, I think is significant, especially in, in reference to what you mentioned about what she, Weems talks about, the Shulamite's blackness, mm -hmm. um, because she's tying the whole argument that she sees the song making to the Shulamite's claim of blackness, that this, uh, whatever the blackness signifies, is whatever the, the, the social factor is that the lovers have to argue against. Um, so she says, these are two lovers whom society for inscrutable reasons sought to keep apart, perhaps because they were from different classes, from different ethnic backgrounds or of a different color. Um, so all those would be three different ways that the, the Shulamite's blackness has been interpreted. Um, and let me just uh, give the two verses that refer to the blackness. So this is uh, song one, verses five and six in the new revised standard version it says i am black and beautiful O daughters of jerusalem like the tents of kadar like the curtains of solomon do not gaze at me because i am dark because the sun has gazed on me my mother's sons were angry with me they made me keeper of the vineyards but my own vineyard i have not kept um so that's where the the, the vineyard keeper of the vineyards part is where you get the uh class interpretation of the blackness that uh, she's lower class so she has to work outdoors and so she gets like very darkly tanned um, but as uh, Weems points out there's other interpretations that maybe she's the, the Shulamite is coming from a distant land where the people have darker skin than the land that she's coming into um, so there could be that as well um, and yeah, anyway, it's significant that she's centering the Shulamite's blackness and constructing her argument, whereas in Tribble, we don't really get that at all, I think. Right, right. Okay, so I know we have some other uh, some other responses to give to these two pieces. Uh, Victoria, uh, what what do you think about these two pieces and also about like 
anything else about how we can read the song from a feminist perspective? Um, I my overall response to both of them was just I I am so sad that I didn't know them earlier. Well, not just the two pieces, but I had never read the song from start to finish uh, before prepping for this podcast, and um, it was a really kind of a huge, empowering, interpretive experience for me. Uh, I I had no idea how woman-driven the narrative was. Um, I, I feel like I could have done so many things in the classroom with this when I was still teaching, um, mm. n- not just, uh, not just literary interpretation, because as a, as a poem, as someone who has, um, tools to discuss things like, uh, metaphor and blazon, um, you were mentioning the, the sort of weird metaphors and, and not understanding how to translate them when you were younger. Um, when I started reading this, I thought, um, this is an anachronistic reference, but, um, how much of, uh, Petrarch I could apply to this, the, the idea of this sort of, um, person put together out of, um, you know, metaphorical referential parts. Um, and I, I was kind of being upset that I didn't, uh, have uh, have this reading to discuss um, when I was teaching uh, Renaissance sonnets in a Christian college. Like how how cool uh, that would have been if I could have um, talked about um, the the biblical text alongside those things, um, and not just and that. A- this is done to the male lover in chapter yes. five. Also. Yes, it's that's huge, right? Like this um, this gender inversion of the the very female um blazon tradition uh i I feel like i could have had so much to say about that um also when i was teaching uh also in a christian environment sexuality seminars um if i could have given uh tribble and weems to my uh my students there uh i mean i might have gotten in trouble for that but also i think it would have been um a perspective that they didn't really get exposed to um, in other classes, uh, so mo- most of, of my response was just, I'm really sad that I didn't know all of this before now, uh, but other than that, one other thing I wanted to say is I was, um, I really appreciated Weems's response to Tribble as well, and my favorite thing that she said that I don't think has been mentioned yet, uh, she talks about the song as a midrash on the exclusion of the female point of view in other parts of scripture mm-hmm. and i i really loved that i um i've been thinking a lot about uh about that notion the idea that um you know the bible is is composed of all these books in all these different genres and um, I was in a, a class recently that um, said we shouldn't think of the Bible as a book, but we should think of it as a library uh, because because of all those various genres. And um, I, I appreciated how uh, Weems talking about it as a midrash on other parts of scripture really fit into that notion that we've got all these genres um, happening alongside each other and maybe we should actually let them talk to each other more. Yeah, Bible as a library, that's something I've been hearing a lot more recently, too, uh, in sort of popular culture. I think 
that's a an interesting trend and really a, a good perspective to, to think about the variety in the Bible. Um, what about you, Carla? What were your other responses to these mm. two pieces or the song in general? I, I mean, I think uh, similarly, I wish this was something that had been taught to me differently. You know, I think I've, I've thought a lot in the work I've done in the last few years about female desire and what it means and what it doesn't mean and the impact of the, the closing down or the invisibilizing of female desire on, on our entire lives um, as women. And so if, if this had been taught otherwise, you know, it, it, it could have remade that narrative in, in my upbringing. The idea that um, a woman can be the initiator, can have her own drive, can argue for her point of view and what she wants, like that what she wants can be central to her to her vocalizing and that that, that isn't um, an unladylike position to take um, is an interesting thing. I also think the thing I take away from it at this point in my life um, is just such a deep valuing of the embodied experience. Um, this book, yes. like you said, doesn't doesn't like refer to God, doesn't refer to fasting, doesn't refer to prayer. It is like a celebration of the human experience in the body. And that, like, I've been thinking lately about there are certain, you know, connections that you have with someone that are, that are spiritual or that are, that are other things, you know what I'm saying? And then there's the particular of the sexual experience and that can't be replicated in any kind of sort of spirit. It, it, to me, infiltrates the spiritual. It's part of it. They're connected. But like, I couldn't, I couldn't lose my sexual partner as a body and feel a similar, the connection that, that I have. Do you know what I'm saying? Like those things aren't the same. I could talk to my best friend over the phone from miles and miles away. And she and I could have the same experience as we do when we're in proximity. I could not, however, have that same thing with my sexual partner. Do you know what I'm saying? If his body is not present for me, I don't have the thing that I need physically. It's, it's just a different, it's such a different experience in the world. And so that, that, that thing right now is what I think I, just in my current world, I feel the most is that how, how do we value that embodied experience in the way that the book invites us to, that says, don't, we're not thinking about you as a spiritual being, we're thinking about the needs of your flesh and your bone. And, and that those are equally important to, I think, um, I, I really relate a lot to what you're saying, Carla. I think that's a great point. And I think you and I were both raised in a, a very low church Protestant tradition that I don't think it was trying to do this on purpose. Um, but I, I think there's oftentimes in those um, low church traditions an almost Gnostic um, elevation of the spiritual over the physical and I think Mm -hmm. we we can we can be inculcated with this negative view of our physical bodies Um, I know specifically Mm -hmm. as a as as a disabled woman um, someone who never has the luxury of forgetting that I am an embodied person. My body reminds me through pains and spasms a thousand times a day that I live in a located body. Um, I, I definitely went through a lot of, um, a lot of issues, um, when I was, um, as an adult person exploring what it meant to live in a sexual body. Um, I think ableism, 
plus that kind of semi-gnostic view of, of physicality um, gave me a lot of stuff to work through. So I, I agree with you saying that mm. there's a, a lot of a lot of liberation to be found um, mm-hmm. in the song from an embodied perspective here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that too. Like this, finding this a piece like this in the Bible, especially, it's just can be so liberating to us today from just a variety of ex- of perspectives. At the same time, I want to mention a few uh, uh, things that could potentially be problems from a feminist perspective in reading the song. Because um, I'm kind of, I like, I don't, I don't really know how to land on how to read this piece. Um, I'm conflicted because on the one hand, we have this very potentially liberating piece of literature. Um, I don't want to give up the value of this seemingly sex-positive piece of the biblical canon that's voiced by a woman who is othered by her blackness, however it's interpreted. Um, But there's some problems perhaps with the, with the song and perhaps with general trends in the feminist mutualist strands of critis- of interpretation as well. Um, so one is, uh, some of these are brought up in a piece by David Klein's called Why is there a song of songs and what does it do to you if you read it? Where he takes like basically uh, the worst possible view of the song. So this is going to an extreme. But um, so he says that despite the female voicing and our wish that this song might have been composed by a woman, which uh, in Weems' commentary, you can see she really hopes that that was the case. Um, it's actually probably a lot more likely that it originated as a text composed by men and for men. And he says that the underlying cause for the text's existence would then seem to be the need for, of a male public for erotic literature, and that the song may be fundamentally a man's dream about a woman's love, rather than a portrayal of female experience from a woman's perspective. Um, It's a woman as imagined by men, he says, available, exuberant, bold, completely absorbed in loving a man. So is this, in the end, from his point of view, basically a manic pixie dream shulamite? Um, And isn't this maybe a a fantasized woman who's displayed and abased for male pleasure about the Shulamite's blackness as a result of her exposure to the sun and forced labor for men, which I uh, just read about in um, verses 1, 5 to 6. Klein says, she has been the victim of male violence and anger, and she bears the marks of it on her face. And now the poet invites his readers to share his sight of the woman's humiliation. That, that is the very stuff of pornography. Um, so, yeah, he's taking really the worst possible, very yeah, negative I have view. very <laughs> real responses this. in my being to that, 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 that yeah. he is generally saying, a woman, what I feel from that is a woman can't have sexual desire of her own and for her, that, that if a woman has sexual desire, he's still interpreting as a male-centric act. You know what I mean? Like, it, like clearly she has sexual desire because she thinks that's what, or we're reading about her sexual desire because it's attractive to the man that woman has sexual desire, not just because she has it for its own sake and for her own sake. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He's interpreting the book entirely in a male-centric way that doesn't even leave possibility for the idea that that desire might be a separate female centric experience sorry that just does yeah. all kinds he, of things. he's also saying it's completely impossible for men to write well-rounded women right like that also basically, seems bad basically i mean he does he also goes to an extreme sort of in saying that it seems like the the man in the text is more active 
than the woman in um, like where he can go in public spaces uh, and that the woman in the text is more broken apart by the Blazon features than the man, though I think it's still um, pretty, uh, I mean, it, uh, there's a, some sort of equality going on there with the, the Blazon feature in chapter five. Um, but I, I think he does sort of have a point in, in how the song probably originated. Um, but still, I mean, even if you, even if you were to accept his negative view of like its origins, it's still like really liberating for us today. It's also a lot better than other male created views of women in the Bible, I would say. Um, uh, uh, so it, it might be possible in our interpretations to like bracket off the issue of the Shulamite as perhaps originating as an object constructed for the male gaze, maybe, um, because we can now be concerned not just with, like, original male audiences, but especially with, like, female readers today and the liberation that we've been talking about that's potentially offered there. Um, yeah, the, but the other potential problem that I wanted to bring up um, besides that is uh, that a mutuality reading like Tribbles, um, when you take that as being, like, in the criticism, it can tend to like offer itself to a reinscription of heteronormativity, even though she's not like that's not an aim of her piece. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that's brought up in a piece by Stephen Moore and Virginia Burris called "Unsafe Sex, Feminism, Pornography, and the Song of Songs." Um, they say that the song has been transformed into a celebration of, and indeed a warrant for, heterosexuality. Um, first through its late 19th century interpretations that took the song as a picture of an ideal marriage, uh, and then through feminist mutualist interpretations like Tribbles that even though they might point out that marriage isn't in the song, you do definitely get the feeling that just sort of isn't there yet. Um, her framing of the song as a rewriting of Genesis 2 to 3, Burris and Moore say, uh, tacitly represents the song as the charter document of heterosexuality. Um, so in their article, which is a really interesting one, uh, but kind of a little bit out there, um, but a, a very interesting read is they, that they, they attempt to take the song beyond this feminist mutualist reinscription of heterosexuality by seeing it as potentially occupying a realm of unhallowed and therefore for them queer sexuality. So while Kleins condemns the song as the stuff of pornography, they think that pornography and other forms of unhallowed sexuality could offer a way of challenging the heteronormative teleology of matrimony and or monogamy, they say. And uh, part of what they do with that is to read the beating scene in chapter five of the song, where, which Victoria mentioned, uh, where the Shulamite is stripped and beaten by the watchman on the street as this uh, SM fantasy. So oh, come that's on. Really, <laughs> that's, that's, I think, an interesting way of querying the song from like a really presentist perspective. But of course, uh, we if you want to steer clear of pornography and BDSM in your biblical interpretations, which I think, um, like, you, if you wouldn't be able to assign Tribble in your class, you wouldn't be able to assign Burris and more for, for, like, for sure. Um, I, I haven't read this piece. I will read it after this. But it, it sounds like to me, just from what you're saying, that they... Um, they started with a hermeneutic first and, and shoved the text into it. 
I this well, well, yeah, this sure. sounds like a pretty serious I think, reach to me. Which I think uh, is like a good strategy for lots lots of queer readings. Like that's a whole strand of like kinds of strategies that you can take in creating queer readings of a text. But uh, yeah, that's I, I would say definitely. Even though this text is uh, erotic, it wouldn't be pornographic and it wouldn't be explicitly like uh, at BDSM kind of text. <laughs> uh, but their reading into it is um, an interesting interpretive move. But yeah, if you don't want to take that tack in trying to avoid like uh, heteronormativity. I think Weems' argument offers really a, a productive direction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So she's, again, instead of just celebrating this unqualified mutuality and equality like Tribble does, Weems is pointing out the tensions in the text that suggest that the Shulamite's blackness, however it's understood, renders the lover's relationship illicit in the eyes of their society. And it's something that has to be argued for and something that has to be advocated for. So going off of that kind of tactic, we have um, the commentary on the Song of Songs in the Queer Bible Commentary, making kind of a similar argument, adding to it the applicability uh, to queerness. So Christopher King in that commentary says their love affair like that of all queer lovers is essentially transgressive. And it goes on from there to see the song as a paradigm for queer identity and action and offering a valuable biblical apologetic for queer identity. Um, so I do have some potential problems with his reading, but we don't really have time for that here. But, right. oh, I, I think that something important that both Weems and King in the queer Bible commentary are doing in this argumentative tech uh, is centering the importance of the Shulamite's blackness, because that's just uh, often erased in the criticism and something foundational like Tribble, or and also in something more edgier like, like Burris and Moore just doesn't deal with the Shulamite's blackness. Um, and I think that's something that we, we do uh, need to keep at the center here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. What, what were you gonna say? Oh, I agree with I agree with that entirely, and I agree with um, what you're saying is this is a foundation for the assertion of any love experience, any of these experiences, whatever your particular love, what stirs eroticism in you. Part of what I think the Song of Songs sets up is this is this is a thing to be advocated for in whatever form it takes. Do you know what I'm saying? To mm -hmm. I mean, to the degree that it's not. Um, that it's consensual, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's I, I, basically the argument. That, right. That so, yeah. so to me, this is a foundational idea where what they're saying is that this experience of erotic and sexual love is a thing you have a right to as an embodied being. So advocate for it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that's how I hear it. The one other thing I wanted to say back to the, the pornographic idea is, to me, to interpret this as a pornographic text is to entirely center male desire. Yes. To, to say that it has only been written for male desire. And, and that, to me, just entirely invisibilizes, again, female desire, um, as if she can only be viewed and, and looked upon and gazed upon and, and, a, and a subject of male gaze rather than have her own desire. So... I, I just that I reject with every fiber of my being that this is entirely a pornographic idea because they're just that again invisibilizes the female experience in it. So, oh well, that's actually the interesting thing with the Burris and Moore piece that they're reading that scene as the woman's fantasy and a valorization of her uh, queer, in their view, desire. 
Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I see what you mean. Right. Uh, Victoria, did you have any other comments before we move on to the passing on section? Um, I I do want to say I appreciated um, the what you're talking about the valorization of sexual expression, um, but I I guess I'm gonna be a little conservative here and say um, I, I do want more from a, a specifically Christian sexual ethic than um, the sole secular standard of consent. Um, I, I do think that uh, a, a specifically Christian sexual ethic should um, include consent, but also extend, um, extend consent to something like the, um, the prioritization or um, or elevation of the other person uh, because um, she is also a child of God. Um, I, I don't think we can we can just talk about consent as being the only important thing as Christians. Mm, yeah, uh, if we haven't already, I think we should probably sometime do an episode on Christian sexual ethics. That might be <laughs> an interesting topic. Uh, one is is happening in the spring. I'm already oh, writing great. it up. Right. I we'll look yeah. forward to that then. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Unless there's anything else, let's move on to the passing on section then. So, um, Victoria, what would your recommendation be? Uh, so, before I share my recommendation specifically, I need to share something a little personal that I don't think I've mentioned publicly on the podcast yet. Uh, which is after several years of study and prayer, uh, I've begun the process of becoming Catholic. Uh, I started RCIA, the um, adult conversion classes, about eight weeks ago, and uh, if all goes according to plan, I'll be confirmed next spring at uh, the Easter Vigil. So because that's obviously going to affect the topics we explore on this show, uh, I felt like the time was right to share that uh, publicly with all of our listeners. Uh, That said, I'm recommending a short section of a book that uh, was and is a huge part of my decision to become Catholic, which is St. Pope John Paul II's The Theology of the Body, uh, which is a series of public addresses um, about biblical texts and Catholic theology as it specifically pertains to embodiment. There are a couple of short addresses in TOB where he unpacks the song as an expression of mutual marital love between equals uh, that really, I thought, resonated with some of the texts we've talked about today um, and that I found really lovely. So um, we'll put specific um, page numbers and publication information in the show notes. Uh, That's my recommendation. St. Pope John Paul's uh, sections of the theology of the body that uh, deliver addresses on the Song of Songs. Thanks for that. Thanks for uh, sharing about um, what's going on with your religious journey. Um, Carla, what about you? Sure. Um, So this time, this is a book I haven't yet read, but I'm planning to. It's called This Is My Body by Cameron Denzen Hammond. And um, it is a memoir of her experience of purity culture and her upbringing. And um, I've sort of been on a a reading track of this, of purity culture experience for the last few years. um, And this one is just coming out. Um, So I'm curious about it. So I would like to read it and would be curious um, what other people's responses were to it. Um, I think that... um, yeah, I think in the in 
where I am in my world and being having been married and divorced and sorting next steps from there. Um, this is all a really interesting, interesting topic. We didn't really discuss very much what extramarital sex means to us <laughs> in, in our context. And I think that that's a part of a sexual ethic in terms of like a Christian spirit or a Christian sexual ethic, trying to sort that, um, I think is an interesting part of this discussion. So I'm curious about this book and what her experiences are. Thanks. That sounds like something to definitely check out. Um, I think I think for me, I'll go ahead and recommend something I've recommended before, which is what I was just uh, citing from the Queer Bible Commentary published in 2006. Um, so unlike a traditional commentary, um, it's got lots of different com- contributors and lots of different methods and approaches going on in this one volume. Uh, it's a single volume commentary of the entire Bible. So it gives you this mosaic of different ways People are looking at the Bible and finding value in it uh, for queer folks and from queer perspectives. Um, so that's some something you could uh, check out if you're interested in that. So thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the show's the network's sorry Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Carla Godwin, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss cosmetics, hair dye, and age-defying products. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.